New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Thank you very much, Ali, and uh, good morning again, New Horizon. It's great to be here. We're thoroughly enjoying it, and uh, just enjoying the spirit of this event with people from so many church backgrounds and so many, and right across the generational spectrum, all united in our Lord Jesus. That's fantastic. And it's also been a particular joy for Alison and I to get to know uh, others on the, the, the team here, uh, Alan and uh, his wife Pauline, who are hosting us, and uh, Ben and Donna and others. And at the end of this morning, if you were here last night, at the end of this morning, you might end up thinking that Ben and I were kind of colluding in advance of, uh, of this week, because we were kind of commenting yesterday how we're coming from so much the same place. There's even a certain amount of overlap, really, in the material, which is very exciting, because it would be a tad awkward if we were pulling in different directions. But uh, actually, I often think when God is saying kind of the same thing twice in fairly close succession, it's often because he particularly wants us to listen. So it's with that spirit that we come to Psalm 42 and 3 today. I'm going to uh, read just Psalm 42, but we will cover both of those psalms. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day... The Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. I want to begin with a little more of my story to put this into some context. We're going back four or five years and... Life had been particularly difficult. This was before the pandemic, but some things were difficult before the pandemic too. And several relationships uh, within my life had uh, gone pear-shaped and there was no sign of them uh, improving. And things were hard. 
I kept going, but I wasn't sleeping very well. My mood was swinging quite wildly at times, and sometimes I would wake up feeling the kind of low that just clings to you all day, and with that sense that, that this was a kind of low that wasn't okay. I remember one morning I woke up, and my stomach felt like somebody had tied a huge knot in it. It was just churning and churning. And unusually for me, I had absolutely no energy. I just collapsed into bed, and I didn't get up properly for 36 hours, which just never happens. But it kind of passed, and I went on. A few months later, Alison and I were on holiday, and uh, we were walking along by the, uh, the sea, which is something I love to do, and usually I could do it all day with no difficulty. But after about an hour and a half, I was absolutely exhausted. We stopped for a coffee and a cake, or a scone, actually, because it was Devon. And my stomach started knotting up again. A few hours later, I was back in bed, sleeping and sleeping. There was obviously something wrong. The following week, at last, I visited the GP, and I was signed off with stress-induced depression. It was official. I was mentally ill. Now, some of you may feel that's a very odd thing to hear from a platform. Others of you may feel I needed to hear that from a platform. And if you're not sure and you want to engage with that, there's a book I haven't read myself, but it's on the bookstall, I think, written by a guy in the Republic, Paul Ritchie, a pastor there, who asked the question, is it unspiritual to be depressed? A very important question for us to wrestle with, and one that I've had to wrestle with too. But early in those difficult weeks, I read Psalms 42 and 3. Almost certainly these were originally one composition. You can see with the little refrain that goes through uh, verse 5 and 11 and then 43 verse 5. It's a common refrain that seems to bind these together into a single psalm. And I stumbled upon it and to be honest, for a couple of weeks, my relationship with God meant praying the Lord's Prayer and living in this psalm. I couldn't do any more than that, but this is what kept me going. The psalm spoke to me, gave me hope for sure. But more profoundly than that for where I was right then, this psalm spoke for me in my pain and my confusion. I've always loved the quote which is attributed to the church father Athanasius, although we're not quite sure. The quote that says that while in most of scripture God speaks to us, in the Psalms, he speaks for us. Beautiful quote. So have you ever been reading a Psalm and thinking, it's exactly what I'm feeling? Calvin once described the Psalms as an anatomy of the soul because he said, there's not one feeling of which the human being is, uh, is capable, which is not somewhere reflected in the Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. And sometimes they speak for us when we have no words to speak for ourselves. And that's what this psalm did for me. Now, all of this was over four years ago now. And I had some excellent counseling that I mentioned yesterday. I had a year or so of medication. And I had a wonderfully supportive wife and family. And I've largely recovered. But I've 
come to realize it's important for me to stand on platforms like this sometimes and just be honest and name this experience for what it was, a period of disturbingly low mood and depression, and I needed help, professional help, and I'm so grateful for it. And I think it's important because Christians, I find, are often quite reluctant to talk about mental health or even more reluctant to talk about mental illness, even though, at least in the English context, I can't imagine it's any different in the rest of the UK. A survey in 2015 showed that one in four adults has a diagnosed mental illness at some point in their lives. This isn't just something for a fringe of society. This is mainstream. In fact, almost certainly since the pandemic, those figures will have increased pretty dramatically. And my own experience and my experience as a pastor tells me we need to break the silence and talk honestly about this stuff. And our theme at New Horizon this year is a wonderful opportunity to do exactly that. We'll come to the text of Psalm 42 in a few minutes, but I want to just share a few wider reflections, first of all. Let me first say a few things by way of kind of expectations. First, important to say, I'm just a pastor. I'm not a mental health professional. I don't have easy answers to depression or anxiety, still less for bipolar or schizophrenia or other kinds of, of chronic mental illness. Second, to say that I'm actually hugely grateful for the input of friends who are mental health professionals and conversations with them stand behind some of what I'm going to be sharing this morning. Also want to be clear, I'm not going to be telling anybody this morning to throw their pills away. There's an unfortunate history of Christians doing that. No, brain chemistry is undoubtedly a significant factor within our mental health. And when it's out of line, mental illness can easily result. So it is often appropriate to seek and value medical and other forms of professional support. And I think as Christians, we should be part of putting away the shame that sometimes seems to be attached to admitting that you've needed antidepressant medication. Our brains are physical organs, and sometimes things go wrong with them, just like they do with other parts of our body, and we need help. I also want to be, say, be clear in saying I don't have any magic formula to prevent you experiencing mental illness. In fact, as I understand it, the dominant factors, at least behind chronic forms of mental illness, are predominantly genetic anyway. And sad to say, I can't change your genes. So those are a few expectations. Now, there are a number of uh, attempts made to define mental health or mental illness. The suggestions I found most helpful say something like this, and I think this will be on the screen, that mental health is about our ability to interpret and respond appropriately to reality so that we can cope with the normal stresses of life and think, feel, and act appropriately. When those things are in place, our mental health is probably in a good place. But it's important to understand, this isn't just about our thinking being disordered. Did you notice thinking, feeling, and acting appropriately? Our mental health is, is part of our humanity. It's not just processing power upstairs. It's the whole complex of who we are in our innermost being. 
And mental illness, of course, occurs when that ability to think, feel, and act appropriately breaks down. That might be depression, it might be persistent anxiety, it might be delusion or paranoia or other forms of mental illness. Now, while some of the categories that we now use to talk about mental health are not explicit in Scripture, we need to be honest about that, I hope we're going to see this morning that Scripture actually does both speak to us and speak for us in these particular struggles of the minds. Let's start way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, which tells us that God made us from the dust of the ground. And that's important because it reminds us we are physical beings and we need to take our physicality seriously. Matter matters because God made it. We're physical beings. But Genesis 2 verse 7 also tells us that the life which is distinctly human life comes from the breath of God himself. Verse 7, he breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. In other words, what it means to be human is connected with that endowment of the life of God himself which is given to us in creation. So as well as being physical beings, we also need to understand ourselves as spiritual beings. Or to use the language of Genesis 1, we are made in the image of God. God who is spirit. But actually, if you look back into Genesis 1 and the description of us being made in the image of God, you'll see something else that's important. Chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So did you notice all that language? Us, our, male, female. God is not... A solitary monad existing in eternal, splendid isolation. He has been eternally, he is eternally, a community of love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, constantly giving themselves to one another in perfect, unceasing love and delight. That's the God of the Bible. He is relationship in and of himself, and therefore he has made us in his image for relationship. So as well as being physical beings, we are also spiritual beings and social beings. That's how we're made. But what are we made for? Well, there are lots of ways of answering that question, but let me highlight three things. In Genesis 1, we are clearly created to think meaningfully. The reason I say that is that God is speaking here. And the words that God speaks are not just kind of sounds, they are meaningful, they correspond to reality. Indeed, they create reality, they define reality. God's words correspond to a world outside of himself. And he addresses those words to us because he made us with the capacity to think meaningfully. Our thinking is meant to correspond 
to the world that's there. We're created to think meaningfully. We are also, though, created to feel authentically. At the end of creation, we see God experiencing pleasure and joy in his work. Chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Don't you love that? God enjoying his own creativity. But he's made us in his image also to experience pleasure and joy. Chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Creation is not just utilitarian. It's given to us for our pleasure as well. God has created us to feel pleasure and joy. And then thirdly, we are created to act or behave responsibly, appropriately. God reveals himself to us as someone who works, who creates, who acts, and then he commissions us, chapter 1, verse 28, to work and to act within his world on his behalf. Now, if you put these two things together, what we are created as, physical, social, spiritual, and what we are created for, to think, to feel, and to act, if you put these together, you begin to get a simple kind of model for thinking about human well-being, mental health. You can see it as this kind of three-legged stool in which our mental health, that is our capacity to think meaningfully, feel authentically, behave responsibly, is kind of like the seat and it's resting on these three legs of our human makeup, physical, spiritual and social. And so problems with our mental health can arise from any of those three legs and problems will arise. Because we live in the world of Genesis 3, the world of the fool, spoiled and broken by human sin. So problems with our mental health can arise from physical causes, brain chemistry, genetics, other physical health problems can have a major impact on our mental health. If there is insufficient serotonin or dopamine or other neurotransmitters functioning in our brain synapses, then our ability to think meaningfully, to feel authentically, and to act responsibly will be affected adversely with physical beings. But problems can arise also from our social relationships, broken relationships, codependent or controlling relationships, abusive relationships, or the absence of relationships, the challenge of loneliness. These can all affect our mental health. And in childhood development, where key relationships are lost or damaged or dysfunctional, there is often a long-term impact on mental health that can take a great deal of skilled counseling to unpick and help bring healing to. But then, of course, our mental health can be adversely affected by spiritual difficulties. This is about being in a right relationship with God. And when we have wrong and distorted relationships with God and begin to imagine him as some kind of tyrant or the kind of parent figure that you can never please and is only ever disappointed with you, we start to transfer those distorted ideas onto God and it can have a profoundly damaging impact on our mental health. But it's also, of course, to deal with with the things that 
displace God, the idols of the mind, which determine so much around our security, our sense of significance, our sense of self-worth. The idols, the, the things that we feel we cannot do without, that control our thinking, control our values, and so easily distort our mental health. Difficulties arising from all three of these areas. The converse then is true that paying attention to our physical well-being through sensible eating, healthy exercise, good patterns of work and rest and boundaries, paying attention to our social relationships through dealing with broken relationships as best we can and listening well and learning to forgive, and attending to our relationship with God. All of things, all of these things are key for us if we want to do what we can to look after our mental health. And it seems to me that as Christians, we've got some very distinctive contributions to make to that understanding of how we guard our mental health. And we need to embrace those. So there's some background, and with that background, now let's enter the world of Psalms 42 and 3. This is, I'm going to call it a psalm, uh, for, to rather than keep saying Psalms 42 and 3. This is a psalm of lament. Do you know, there are about 60 psalms of lament in the psalms. I often associated the psalms in the past just with kind of happy songs and, uh, and lots of wonderful praise. But no, 60 of the 150 are poems of lament, in which the writer is voicing their complaints or their questions to God and or pouring out their grief and their confusion to him. I love it that there are 60, because they give us 60 reasons, 60 sources of permission to us to bring our most untidy emotions to God. And they give us words that help us to do that. And here's the thing, since the Psalms are words for us, true, but words from God to us as well, it means that we can take these words, we can make them our own, we can bring to God these same words without fear of being pushed away by God because they are his gift to us to use well. There was one psalm that meant a lot to me during the, uh, the dark days. It was Psalm 88, and it's a psalm... It doesn't resolve. Lots of the Psalms do resolve, and they kind of end up happy in the end. And there's a place for that. That's great. But when you are really in the darkness, finding Psalm 88, which stays dark, the last line is, darkness is my friend. And you think, there you go. Somebody else who's a believer has been here before, and it didn't just turn around for them in a day with a little bit of nice advice. No, we can take these words. We can make them our own. They are God's gifts. This psalm here has 13 questions within it. And most of those questions come from a believer. Is that because I just said darkness is my friend? I, don't know. <laughs> I hope I've not offended anybody here. Anyway, I can still see, so that's fine. 13 questions in the psalm, most of them from a believer who is feeling far from God while longing to be near to him. Why was he feeling far from God? Well, we can't be absolutely sure, but the heading suggests that he was a temple musician from Jerusalem, one of the sons of Korah, who'd been taken, probably against his will, 
far away from the temple, perhaps up in the north of the country, and is now in the hands of hostile, unbelieving captors. There's a story in 2 Kings 14 that describes exactly that scenario. It could even be that that's the situation. But whatever the precise situation of Psalm 42 and 3, this is a psalm for any of us who find ourselves feeling far away from God and confused and saddened by his ways. John Goldingay, one of the commentators on the psalm, identifies a recurring pattern in this psalm, which I think is, is very helpful. It's going to be up there on the screen. It's got three things, uh, letting yourself go, letting yourself think, and pulling yourself together. That's Goldingay's framework, and it cycles three times through that kind of process. The pulling yourself together bit is the one that I feel not quite so comfortable with. If you've ever been depressed and someone tells you to pull yourself together, you'll know that's not a very helpful thing to say. So I've just slightly rephrased it in a way that I find more helpful to talk about releasing, something that Ben talked about last night, letting yourself go, and then reflecting, making yourself think, and then regrouping, which Goldenegate calls pulling yourself together. And you can see that all the way through. In verses 1 and 2, in verse 6, in 43 verse 1, he's releasing, he's letting himself go. He's facing the reality of how life is and how he is, and he's bringing it to God. And then he moves on, he reflects, he gives himself space to think. Verse 4, he remembers how he used to worship God in the temple. Verse 8, he remembers how God's love has directed him and the praise of God sustained him. And then he regroups in that refrain each time with those words, as Jonathan was saying, addressed to himself. Verse 5, my soul, why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I think this is a hugely helpful pattern if we're going through difficulties in our mental health. Releasing, reflecting, regrouping. And it doesn't all take place within two or three minutes. This might take months for us to journey through. But what it's teaching us is that we don't have to just stuff our emotions down, nor do we have to pour them out destructively on other people always. No, we can bring them authentically to God and not be pushed away. And then when we've done that in the light of his truth, we can speak back to those negative emotions, as he's doing in the refrain each time, speaking to himself, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? He's questioning those negative emotions. This is CBT from kind of three millennia ago, and it's already there in the Psalms, but not secular CBT, but CBT framed by faith in God. He's speaking back to his emotions, learning to question them, even to challenge them. And what I think is that this pattern that we see in each cycle of the psalm actually to some extent is represented in the journey of the psalm as a whole, as we'll see. So just walking through it, verses 1 to 5, feeling far from God, and there's lots of release going on here. The experience is encapsulated by that question, verse 2, where can I go and meet with God? 
Maybe you imagine him up in the mountains in the north of Israel and, and there's a deer running by and, and the deer is panting desperately, desperately for water. And, and hearing the panting of the deer, it's like it holds a mirror to his own physical soul, but, but then as he, uh, physical thirst, but as, as he experiences intense thirst for himself, that becomes like a, a window into that deep inner thirst of his soul, his thirst for God himself. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him? But it seems from his circumstances that God is far away and has lost all interest in him. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? And he doesn't know how to answer the question, because he doesn't know where God is in all this either. So he releases his sadness to God. But then he reflects as well. He's reflecting even in his releasing, isn't he? He's reflecting that the God who is there is the living God, the desirable God. And he's reflecting on his own past, how good it has been to worship this God in the past and serve him. And he's longing for those days again. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. A bit like some of us felt perhaps when we couldn't be at New Horizon for years and years. And, and we longed for it again. He's in that place. He's making himself think. But then, having released, having reflected, there's a moment of regrouping. He speaks to himself. Verse 5, my soul, why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? There is something better. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So important. My, you, you son of Korah, he's saying to himself, what? Why are you feeling like this? What, what's going on? Why are you so disturbed? Dig deep, understand what's going on. And keep your hope alive by investing it in the Lord. You can't see what he's doing now, but he will give you a cause to praise Again, We saw yesterday, didn't we, that the renewing of our mind is a lot to do with beginning to think the thoughts of the future. And of course, we can do that in a way that this psalmist never could. Because in Jesus Christ, the future has been revealed to us where God is taking the whole of creation in a way that wasn't so clear, perhaps, to him. And indeed, in Jesus Christ, the kingdom, which is ultimately future, has invaded the present so that we begin to experience his power now. We have a fresh and deeper opportunity for the renewal of our minds than this psalmist had. But there's something of that here as well, as he's confident that God will not neglect his dwelling place, but will bring him back to worship there again. Release, reflect, regroup. But you know, I am so thankful that Psalm 42 doesn't stop at verse 5. I am so, so thankful for that. I very well remember one morning, I think it was probably the second or third time that I'd read it. And I, I got to verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Put your hope in God. It sounds like, yes, 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 Lord. I, I know that is what I need to do. That is the right answer. But I can't tell you how much of a relief it was 
when I then read verse 6. He's just done this moment of regrouping. He's just said, why are you downcast? And then verse 6. Do you know, Lord? My soul is downcast. That's still the reality. I know the answer, but my soul is downcast within me. Such a relief. You know, Christians can be rather too full of easy answers and unsolicited and perhaps slightly trite advice to depressed people. I know, I've been there. And especially Christians who've never experienced depression themselves. Oh, they know what you need to do. They know what your problem is. And they know that all you need to do is this and then it will be fine. Please, friends, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. Someone is depressed and they say to you they're depressed. Please don't try and fix them in a 30-second conversation. You would just isolate them and take them even worse. Don't quote Romans 8.28 to them just then. There might be a time for that, but it's not then, not in the 30-second conversation. Just put your arm around their shoulder and stand with them in it. You don't have to fix them. That's for God to do. It's not for you. For you, it's just to be alongside them, not to give easy answers. But what this psalm tells me, especially in verse 6, is that God still has time for you when the right answers don't seem to be working and the trite advice is ringing hollow. And God is still there for you when your friends begin to walk away from you because it's too hard for them to keep journeying with you. It's quite exhausting to be alongside a depressed person for very long. But God doesn't run out of resources. You can have the right answer, you can know the right answer, and you can still say to God, you know, my soul is downcast. That's my reality today, God. It's very precious. Which leads us into that second section of the psalm, which I've called feeling confused by God. Again, there's a key question at the heart of it. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? Sometimes God's ways are so confusing, we don't understand. But before he gets to that question, he lets himself go again. He faces his emotions. My soul is downcast within me, he says, verse 6. But notice where he goes after that. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. Now that's key. Because when we're downcast... The temptation is, frankly, to forget God. But this poet knows better. My soul is downcast, therefore I will remember you. Even though I'm a long way from Jerusalem and where I long to be, even though I feel far from God, and though my soul is downcast within me, still, I will remember you. It's the very moment, actually, when we most need to remember God to reflect on his unchanging goodness, to remember the things that he has done in our lives, how he has walked with us through better times, how he is in control even in these difficult days. But the releasing and the reflecting, they're all kind of interwoven in this, this kind of stream of consciousness that now comes out. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. We need to imagine him in those hills of Hermon, standing perhaps beside a crashing waterfall, 
some, uh, lots of waterfalls there that feed into uh, the, the, the River Jordan. And you can imagine the thunderous noise and the, the churning waters in the pool below. And he hears the noise and he looks into those churning waters and he sees it's almost as if he's looking into the turmoil of his own heart. Verse 7, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. And then the metaphor changes. It's now not that pool in the oceans. It's the seas themselves. All your waves and breakers have broken over me. The deep, the sea in Hebrew thinking is always a place of restlessness and chaos. And that's what his heart feels like now. And that succession of waves breaking over him without enough time to regroup between each one so that he feels he's sinking deeper and deeper down and he can never get back for breath in between each one. That sense of drowning is one of the classic metaphors for the onset of depression. And it's here, right in the Bible. But did you notice whose waterfall and whose breakers they are? This is difficult, isn't it? They're gods. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Hmm. So tempting when our lives are full of pain and questions to try and get God off the hook and kind of imagine he just kind of turned his back for a few minutes and had a bit of an off day. It's nothing to do with him. He, he can't really have been in control that day, can he? It, it, this, this one just slipped through when he wasn't looking. Let's diminish God a little. Get him off the hook. But of course, once you do that, you really are up the creek with no paddle in sight at all. Because if God has lost control, you have lost the only hope that you have left. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. This doesn't imply a God in heaven delighting to inflict pain upon us. Not at all. But it does remind us of a God whose sovereignty encompasses somehow, mysteriously, even the dark sides of our lives where we don't know what he's doing, but still he is mysteriously and gloriously sovereign. Verse 8, I think might be better translated in past or imperfect tenses. You can translate it that way. In other words, he's looking back. He's reflecting. By day, the Lord used to direct his love. At night, his song was with me as I prayed to the God of my life. This is the heart of his confusion. Given what he's seen of God's care in the past, what on earth is happening now? And then he does the best thing you can do with a question like that. He addresses it frankly to God. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? I love the quote from one writer, that God is remote enough for him to feel deserted, yet near enough for him to speak to. That's a wonderful reality to embrace. Even when God feels far away, he is still near enough for you to speak to. And you can ask him the tough, tough questions. Lord, why have you done this? He still feels the confusion. But somehow the reflections of this turbulent little passage have been good for him. And he's ready to regroup. If God has cared for him in the past, Surely God will care 
again. So verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And then finally, Psalm 43, verses 1 to 5, the final section where, again, there's a lot of questioning. Verse 2, why have you rejected me? But as a whole, this section is more positive. The process, the cycle is beginning to have its impact as he gets towards the end of this psalm. Still, he's letting it all hang out, but he's starting to push back a little bit harder, pushing through the venting of his emotions and now beginning to use his convictions to push back on those negative emotions. Perhaps, verse 1, God will do something to vindicate him. Yes, verse 2, he's got his complaints, but he's still complaining to God, his stronghold. You can feel faith just beginning to rise. And then his reflection leads him to think of God's light and his truth. God hasn't changed. It's one of the things to hang on to when you are depressed and confused. The God who is there, even though you can't feel him, he's still the same. He's still the God of light. He's still the God who speaks truth. Nothing has changed in heaven. He's still there. And so surely God's light and truth will lead him back to the place of his presence. Verse 3, send me your lights and your faithful care or your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountains, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. You can imagine a guitarist here and he's not been able to play for ages. He's like, yeah, I'm going to be back there. I'm going to play my guitar again and lead God's people in praise. Faith is beginning to arise. And once again, he can regroup, perhaps more firmly, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Releasing, reflecting, regrouping. Not just once, but over and over and over again. God isn't in a hurry. He's got plenty of time. You can go through the process time and time again as God's presence slowly, slowly penetrates the layers of your grief and sadness. He's not hurrying you. He's got all the time in eternity. That's the extraordinary journey of this psalm. And it's a journey we are invited to make when our hearts are broken, when tears become our constant food day and night, and we need to lament a God who seems to us so far away. This is a psalm that gives to us permission to speak, releasing to God our deepest emotions, our most uncomfortable questions, and doing so freely and without fear of rejection. He's big enough. He can take it. Those of you here who are parents, you know what it's like when one of your kids is not in a good place and they're not sure if they can really share honestly with you. And actually all you want from them is just that they say what's in their hearts. You don't mind what it is. It won't change anything about your relationship with them. They're still your kids. You just want them to open their hearts and tell you the truth. And God, the great Father, is ready to do that. He gives us permission to speak. 
And then he gives us encouragement to think, learning that when we are confused by God, we can still remember him and reflect on his character. There is so much about God and his ways that we don't understand, but we cling to what we do know, that he is the living God, our rock, our stronghold, the lover of our souls, and the sovereign ruler of creation. He holds the future in his hands, and we're encouraged to think. And then the psalm gives us words, words to address to ourselves, as well as words to address to God. Speaking to yourself in this kind of way is not a sign of being mentally deranged. It's a sign of being mentally resilient and strong. It's an important discipline. Words that help us regroup, words that help us reorientate ourselves to the God of salvation, to the God of new beginnings, who hasn't finished with us yet, who still has so much to show us and will lead us to worship him again. Perhaps most wonderful of all is to realize that Jesus also prayed these psalms of lament. The psalms were, after all, his hymn book. They're quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. We worship a singing Savior. And when Jesus took the psalm of 22, one of the great psalms of lament, on his lips. He did so knowing not only the sense of being forsaken by God, but the full and terrible reality of being forsaken by God. From the cross, Jesus, the singing Savior, enters the place of lament with us as he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as that cry pierces the heavens and echoes on in the chaos of our own troubled hearts and broken hearts, we see that he was forsaken so that we would never be, that he was rejected so that we would be brought home, that he died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us home to God. You remember the hope in this psalm, the hope that the temple would still be standing and that he would one day come back to that temple. It was a good hope. But if you know your Old Testament history, you'll know that the day did come when that temple was destroyed. But in the death and resurrection of Jesus, John 2 tells us that temple has been rebuilt forever. He is the new meeting place between heaven and earth. And in him, we, whatever the mess of our lives, however confused our minds, however disordered our emotions, we are invited to come home to him. Jesus sang the psalms of lament so that we could sing the songs of salvation. The suffering and death and victory of his resurrection guarantee for us that the time of lamenting will one day be over and that he will bring us to his new creation in which every tear is wiped from our eyes and there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And friends, that is the best news and the surest hope for troubled minds. Now, I'm very conscious I've spoken of lots of things this morning that may have touched raw nerves in our lives, in our hearts and minds. I just want to remind you, we have a prayer team 
who love to journey with people who are processing tough things or processing great things that they want to share. So I want to commend that to you. Let's have a moment of prayer and then Ali will bring our time to a close. Thank you, Lord Jesus, so much that in you we find a tender high priest who can understand us and empathize with us in our weakness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have been in that place of God-forsakenness and you understand us when we feel we are there. But thank you that you went there in order to bring us home to the Father. Please grant that as we bring to you the struggles of our hearts and minds, we may know you as the Father who never lets us go. And we may know you, Lord Jesus, as the saviour and lover of our souls who clings to us for all eternity. And may know the comfort of your Holy Spirit very near to us. For your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.